Bye, John. Oh, this is intimate. I thought it was going to be three of us. <laughs> that would be weird. Hey, folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Today, I have a very special guest. Why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Tomas Rogel. Um, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Tomas, I know you're a big fan of Peppa Pig. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what Peppa means to you and also what she means in a greater cultural context? Yeah, I think I can answer both of those questions uh, in one sentence, which is that Peppa Pig is a gay icon. <laughs> um, I think that's that we don't need to hear more. Like that, we can end it right there. That's the whole podcast episode. Um, we don't even have to explain more. But <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like when I first met you, maybe like a lot of what I sent you was Peppa Pig shit. <laughs> Because truly, like she she uh, she dropped that album of hers, uh, her first mixtape, if you will, appropriately titled "My First Album," um, and it had a lot of experimental vibes in it. Like I was really digging it. I, uh, you know, "Expert Daddy Pig" was one of my favorite songs of the album. Uh, but there's a "Traffic" is also a good song of that album. And someone like was like, "Oh, the beginning of the song sounds something like Sophie would produce." And someone out there truly did take. Traffic by Peppa Pig and put it on top of a Sophie track. And you, you heard it. You heard it. It slaps. It slaps super hard. So Sophie, uh-huh. um, for those who don't know, mm-hmm. talk about Sophie for a second. Yeah, Sophie's this really cool artist. Um, she does electronic-ish music, a lot of like glitchy sounds, uh, really experimental. Um, yeah, she's, uh, she's also a queer icon <laughs> for that matter. Uh, she has been in the game for a minute and no one really knew about her for a minute but uh she's dope she does a lot of great collabs with uh people like charlie xcx you know like the gay icons just really be connecting with each other <laughs> <laughs> they link up yeah so someone saw fit yeah. to mix sophie with um uh, a song off of peppa pig who is a is she an Australian? I believe she's Australian, yeah. An Australian cartoon pig for children. Yes, for children. But I saw some adult lyrics in this album. Just kidding. <laughs> she was talking about pulling like a Glock. No, just kidding. <laughs> this is how icons are born. Yeah. Through these sort of legends that we Make build. Beef. Fake beef. Yeah, fake beef. So, would you say Peppa Pig, is she the new... She's up and coming. I mean, she is already uh, world-renowned, you know, just known worldwide for her acting skills. You know, she's she's really an international icon. Um, She's known for singing now, you know, producing her own tracks. I really see it in her and in her future, you know, to, like, be maybe, like, the next queen of pop. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What will we think of next? So, I know that you're you're a political person. Yes. And you've been following the. um, You wouldn't guess from what we just talked about, but yeah. (laughs) Well, Peppa is quite political. This is true. Again, gay icons, you know, they gotta be political. Absolutely. Yeah, they cannot be. Um, I can't wait to see who she endorses. Which brings Marianne Williamson, hopefully. Well, you sort of jumped 
the gun? A bit, because <laughs> I was going to say, I know you've been following the um, Democratic, um, the debates uh-huh. that have been happening uh, very closely. Yeah, unfortunately. I think I'm down to two brain cells from watching all of that. <laughs> um, clearly your favorite is Joe Biden. JK, sorry that no, wasn't funny. No, no, even no, 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 no. You don't have to apologize for me. This is true. Just no. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say, I know someone we've been following, both of us, very yes. closely as of late, is Marianne Williamson. Miss Marianne, yes. Can you tell us what it is like to be part of the Orb Army? <sighs> well, girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. Marianne, <laughs> I can't even say her name. Let me tell you, Marianne Williamson, she is right on. She no, but actually though, she is really <laughs> right on. Uh, I think okay, real talk. Like, I obviously I think you can pick up on a lot of the jesting, the joshing that I do when I'm talking about this candidate, right? Um, but in a real conversation, I think that in the United States there is this weird political space where. Um, some candidates kind of become a parody of, like, not even of themselves, of just kind of like they're not really taken seriously. Uh, oftentimes, because they're saying a lot of messages that don't quite uh, uh, work within uh, the political machine, the normalizing uh, political machine. Um, for so, for someone from like like Marianne Williamson talking about like um, kind of the you know she's been railed a lot for being like anti-vax you know and she's explained like multiple times that it, that's not necessarily her position. Her position is just that there is such a thing as a big control in the pharmaceutical industry and the type of pharmaceuticals that we consume and at what rate, right? Like these are real issues, um, and it's really weird. It's dangerous to me to just kind of like always go to like that. This person's just a meme and nothing more. Like she's so like. Uh, she's so loopy, like, she doesn't even know what she's talking about, like, um, saying shit that doesn't make sense and stuff like that. Like, I don't think that she's stupid by any means. I think that she has a lot of things to say that maybe <laughs> she's not the best person to communicate them. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, r- real issues. So, for example, again, pharmaceutical stuff, but also, like, she was just talking about, like, trauma-informed uh, education uh, a few weeks ago. And, like, yeah, like, I wish I would have had some of that when I was, you know, in middle school and whatnot. Um, there's, I think, uh, people like Bernie and also Warren, I guess now, um, often get like kind of labeled as like a little kooky, like a little off the rails, um, like something's not quite correct with them because um, what they are saying is dangerous to the state of things as they are, if you will. That's such a weird segue. <laughs> But yes, um, I think part of <laughs> being in the Orb Army, um, <laughs> it's just like I really get to connect with all my chakras. <laughs> <laughs> I can just go out. I, I think it's a new it's a new era that has dawned on, on this American soil. Like I am no longer ashamed of going down to the apothecary, picking up some local herbs, and then going down to the jewelry shop, being like, "Yeah, I want some quartz." Yeah, we'll recharge it. You already know. Like, and I don't feel bad about it anymore. I don't feel like I'm being made fun of anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, honestly, hopefully, Marianne Williamson, her um, candidacy, her presidency, mm-hmm. will allow for the normalization of those sorts of um, activities. We'll see about that. I don't know. <laughs> wow. 
why don't you give us a rosebud thorn? What's this is a tool that folks uh, like me in the field that I work in yeah. use a lot. When oh, you think you're special? <laughs> I use them too. When we yeah. are facilitating, yes, um, it's uh, it's known as an icebreaker. Mm-hmm. Let's break some of the ice here. Is there ice? I feel a little chilly. Yeah, I feel a little cold. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a rose, meaning something going well for you right now. Give us a bud, yes. meaning something you're looking forward to. And give us a thorn, something you're not too thrilled about right Stab now. Stab me in the back, like made me bleed. I feel like the worst betrayal on my... No. <laughs> Every rose has its thorn. Every rose does have its thorn. I've learned this time and time again, and yet I still don't learn somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but um, let's see. A uh, This is such a... I never know what to answer for these questions, but... Same. Right? So difficult to think. Well, like, all you want to do is talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are a Gemini, I will I mention I am a Gemini, that. and you are a Virgo. Let's mention that. <laughs> so your rose yes my um my rose something great that happened this week is that i'm finally recording this podcast episode with you <laughs> you've been talking about it well i've been talking about it uh, <laughs> for ex- maybe a month now i think like we've only maybe known each other for about that long <laughs> but yeah actually literally from the day that we met i was like yo so your podcast i'm gonna be on it <laughs> Very assertive. Yeah, so that's something cool that's happening. Um, a bud is that I'm about to move to Nashville, Tennessee. Yeehaw land, music city. Just made a sad face. It's so sad. Well, well why? Um, why am I moving? Mm-hmm. Um, for work. I, um, I just I've recently graduated, um, so I'm finally like getting a professional job, if you will. I've been, uh, being, I've been a waiter for so many years now. Um, so this is exciting. It's a new, it, what will you be doing? Yeah. 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 I was getting there. Oh. <laughs> um, so basically I got hired by this nonprofit that provides free legal services to, um, migrants in the United States. This particular branch, uh, works with migrant farm workers and the, uh, Tennessee area and like other surrounding nine states. So, um, what that entails is that I'm going to be gathering for like, well, visiting farms, uh, talking to farm workers to try to, uh, build communication with them. Right. Um, and hopefully compiling, um, information that will help them in litigation cases. So if they are, for example, not being paid by their, um, by their employer, or they're not being paid a uh, fair wage, or they're working too many hours and they don't have time off, they don't have paid vacation or anything like that. Um, these are things I'm going to be fighting for. I'm going to be um, basically doing labor activism, immigration activism at the same time. Um, because, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that I'm very political, and like I guess what I wanted to get to eventually, <laughs> planning ahead, um, is the type of activism that I find important in the current political moment. Um, and the reason why I'm taking this job in one was like, yeah, Nashville, whatever. Like, <laughs> I might get gay, I might get gay bashed, but like, who cares? <laughs> but so I, I want to go to do something that's really important to me. And I think, um, something that we overlook a lot, which is the, um, intersection between labor rights and immigration rights. 
um, and the ways that, that those two identities get exploited alongside each other very often. We didn't really hear about it, you know. So, you know, I worked here at Migrant Justice as well. I do. Let's, we yeah. can talk uh, about your time at Migrant Justice, if you don't mind. What was that yeah, like yeah, for yeah. you? Yeah, it was one summer. I um, interned. Uh, that was my title, an intern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so for a while, I was just like kind of doing like general office work, like photocopying things. Actually, I only did it like twice. Like I started doing like real, real stuff, like real work pretty quickly. Um, but I think the most fulfilling part about working for Migrant Justice, besides the the, the fact that it's an amazing organization and it's wild to me that it's right here in Burlington, Vermont, because they're doing really big stuff. Um, so while I was there, that was um, the summer leading up to the signing of the Milk with Dignity uh, program, like Ben and Jerry's. Which uh, is what? Okay, so the Milk with Dignity program is a fair fruit program that was um, molded after the um, Immokalee Tomato Workers in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, they have their own fair, fair food program, and they like basically have been protesting like Wendy's for several years and like other companies like Burger King and whatnot um, to sign their fair food program so that they can uh, basically source their tomatoes equitably. Um, and what that entailed was paying like a premium to the farms that they purchase their tomatoes from. So that uh, that money could go could be put toward better wages or improving the equipment that they were working with, things such as such as that. Um, so we did something like that like that here, but with the um, dairy industry because the. Sorry about that. Who, if this is a Taylor marker, I will be. It is a Taylor marker. I am so upset. Blocking the shit out of that number. <laughs> Blocked. Anyway, we're gonna leave all that in. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's so terrible. Wow. I'm going to put this stuff on silent. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so as I was saying, um, as I was saying, um, we molded this this program after that after that program in Florida, right? right? And so because the dairy industry is such a big industry, more or less, in Vermont, um, at least that's one of the products that we export a lot of. And so one of the biggest purchasers of milk in the state is Ben and Jerry's, right? Our local ice cream that everybody is in love with. And like, they're always selling this image that they're so for, um, so for, uh, uh like just, uh, justice and like equity in the world and whatnot. Well, they were, they were purchasing their, uh, milk for a while from a lot of farms that did not pay their workers well, or did not pay them for several weeks or would pay them, but not show them their hours on their, on their pay stubs. So they wouldn't know how, how much they actually earned in that week. Um, a lot of them didn't get vacation time, like worked 80 hours a week or more. Right. Uh, like their work at the farm is all that they did. Like it's, it's pretty cruel when you really think about it. Like we work like 30, 40 hours a week, and we're exhausted, right? Imagine doing physical labor for twice that amount of time. Um, but um, so f- I think that the campaign started two years prior to the summer that I worked there, um, and so that's how long it, it, it went for. Um, we basically like protested and protested in Jerry's. We had multiple demonstrations. We had co- like conferences with them. Not I wasn't present at these, but I knew that there were conferences uh, happening. Um, or like meeting the meeting talks basically um, and uh, um, yeah just like a lot of like deflection from there and until I eventually left my internship and so what I ended up doing I'm a time my justice was mostly uh, trying to organize this big protest that we did we walked uh, all the way from a pillar to Waterbury uh, we did that on foot um, one day to basically 
told him that we weren't joking, right? Like we are putting ourselves, our bodies to the test uh, to advocate for this. And it was led by farm workers. Like the, 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 the people who were, if you, if you went there, like all the people that were, that were at the front of the, the march, like at least one third of it, were all migrant farm workers. And that's like the way that we planned it around. Like we wanted to do what they wanted to do. And so they said, let's peacefully protest, but let's do a pilgrimage, essentially, um, to show them, like, what this means to us. Um, and so we did that. It was it, it was a huge toll on my body, for sure. Uh, it, it was, like, half, half a day of just walking um, with a few breaks in between. But um, nothing happened out of that. Uh, that March, interestingly enough, like we got uh, the CEO came out to like meet us and basically said, yes, I'll promise to like still be involved in these negotiations, but didn't sign. Um, he just signed a promise that he would still like uh, uh, work with us. Right. And so maybe like a few months later, I was at school. I was at Wesleyan because um, I went to Wesleyan University. And um, there, like I was like suddenly we were like talking about boycotting. We were like, you know, st- stop all this silly stuff about like not being, uh, not truly protesting. Like we're going to boycott. And so we were doing going to do a boycott basically nationwide, but it was mostly in New England that it ended up happening. Um, and I was organizing one in Connecticut. Um, and I was organizing it with Yale students and literally the morning before, like I heard a rumor like, Oh, like don't make your plans to, 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 uh, boycott concrete yet like make him flexible and I was just like okay like noted and the next morning when we woke up um, Ben and Jerry's had signed the the, the, the the contract because they were scared that we were going to boycott and that it was going to become like a much bigger deal right um, so this is like kind of why uh, to me I think this experience with American Justice was a catalyst to where I am now with my activism and why I like to pressure so much on boycotts and things as such of, of that nature um, they're a little bit more direct than just kind of like going on the street and being like, "Yeah, fuck the orange Cheeto," <laughs> and then going home and like having you like a cup of coffee, like you know, just chilling as if like nothing happened just an hour ago. Uh, that's not the kind of protesting that I like to do, but we can talk more about that later if you want. <laughs> yeah. So that was that. You are looking forward to your new position down there in Tennessee. Yes. Yes. So I can continue essentially doing all the work that I've been doing so far. You got a thorn? Yes, my thorn. (sighs) My thorn is that I'm moving and I literally just became friends with you and now I'm like, well, you're ugly, yeet. (laughs) And now I'm just poof, out, out out of Montpelier, out of Burlington. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that so sad? (laughs) <laughs> I'm crying because I love you. Mm. Anyway, what? <laughs> you mentioned yes. um, your time at Wesleyan mm-hmm. and how you are a recent graduate. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about your thesis? Sure. Oh, God. Okay. Are you ready for another like one hour long Speech. <laughs> Speeches equal teaches. This is true. Yeah. So I um. Well, the title of my thesis. Well, let's 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 uh, address the elephant in the room first. What is it? Where is, is the? That? I don't see any elephants. Oh, that's the. Okay, it's me. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I um. Basically, 
my thesis was not quite a thesis. I still call it that because it was thesis work. It was 110 pages of like sweat, blood, tears, everything you can think of. Um, but I turned it in late. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it became shame, my, uh, shame, right, shame. right. And I mean, f- for honestly valid reasons. And uh, we can talk also about the failures of academia to people who look like you and I. Let's um, talk about yeah, it. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I can discuss it in a minute. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. So it's a senior thesis officially. But come on, like it was it was a thesis. I worked. Just as hard, if not harder, as everybody else, you know, who wrote a thesis. Um, so I don't really care for whatever academics want to say to me. But let's get into the thesis itself. The um, title of it was, if I'm recalling correctly, was um, These Are Not People, These Are Animals. Um, and that's a quote from uh, our current sitting president. Um, and he said that he was talking about MS-13, right? The gang, and this, the very famous quote Salvadoran gang, which, as we will learn in a minute, is not quite Salvadoran, um, but it is an American export. And um, uh, uh, and I also tell you why that's important in a minute. But basically, like since I've been living in the United States, which at this point it's like eleven, maybe twelve years, yeah, like eleven years. Um, the entire time that I lived here, like, I've always felt, um, like, my identity as a brown person, which I didn't really think about before moving to the United States, you know, I didn't think about my skin color that deep, the way that Americans do, and I think there's this weird thing that happens in the United States where a lot of people like to be like, oh, why are you talking about race? Like, no one's thinking about that anymore, but at the same time, like, your actions tell me a whole other thing. Um, I was very, I became very aware about my race and what that meant in the United States as soon as I moved here, day one, like, you know, very, very different from my life in El Salvador. And uh, that often meant that I was getting defined by the, you know, by whatever uh, stereotypes or actions or stories that people had made up in their minds about people who looked like me or or were from a nationality. So um, I would hear in the news a lot and especially now in the last couple of years, like from 2017 maybe, um, with all the talks about like migrant caravans and whatnot, I've been hearing a lot about um, the all the d- degeneracy, you know, of being Central American. So the migrant caravans um, are coming primarily out of Central America, from Honduras, Guatemala, Salvador, right? Honduras, perdón, oh, sorry, <laughs> perdón, perdón a todos los latinos allá, but <laughs> uh, yeah, Honduras, El Salvador. Um, Guatemala, but also Nicaragua, um, pre, you know, pretty much uh, all of Central, Central America is right now immigrating. They're trying to get the fuck out of there. And there's a lot of historical and current reasons for that. For that, And so that's what I wanted to get at with my thesis. I wanted to know what are the discourses that um, are being said, what are being talked about, being created around Central American identity, specifically with Salvadoran identity, uh, keeping MS-13 in mind. MS-13 in mind. Um, but also... I wanted to, um, if you will, demystify a lot of the the whys that weren't weren't even being asked in the first place. So you hear a lot about like people are immigrating, but a lot of the you know the the, the based on the right is not going to ask why are they doing that. Rather, the response is a nativist one. It's going to be um, we don't want them here. They don't belong here. They're leeching off of us. You know they they don't pay taxes, uh, which Im- immigrants do. <laughs> um, you know, you hear a lot of these, like, 
empty arguments that are quite reactionary. They have no substance behind them. And I think that a lot of people are really aware about how ridiculous they sound when they say it. But the way that people who think are on the right side of, you know, things uh, react is also very inflammatory. You know, we start grabbing each other by the fucking hair and start just kind of like going off about like, well, fuck you, you know, like you're not as woke as I am type of thing, you know. So exhausting to see that type of activism, if you can call it that. Um, But yeah, so I wanted to basically be like, okay, let's put away like, all the things that I could say right now to, like, rip you a new one, right? And more ask, like, why are people immigrating? Under what conditions are they immigrating? Why is their immig- like, the amount of immigration, the rate of immigration booming at the moment with families? Um, and what's the historical precedent for all of this? Because things don't just, don't just happen out of the blue. They, they are gradual, right? They build up. And so what I ended up doing for... My, my project um, shifted a lot. It changed a lot, and the thing that sucked about it, which going back to like the whole academia and how it fails brown people and black people uh, thing, is that there was no one really that I felt was qualified to oversee the process of my thesis. Um, I had a white man advising mine, and like while he had been a great professor to me in other situations, you could just tell that he had nothing to add to this, you know, no direction to give me. So I was really on my own. And on top of that, like I didn't feel like he was giving the, the attention that it deserved in comparison to, like, what the other working theses that we were doing in a group. Um, so, you know, I basically was, like, like <laughs> on my own on this, and I had to figure it out. And eventually I did. It came together, like, uh, like a semester after I should have started writing it. <laughs> and um, it was from a phone call that I had with my mom. And um, you met my mom. She's a sweetheart, right? Um I so here's the thing about Salvadoran culture, right, and everything. And I, I think the other thing that I need to address is that the reason why I went into this thesis was because I wanted to talk about the Salvadoran Civil War. Do you know about the Salvadoran Civil War? Okay, whiteboard. <laughs> um, so the Salvadoran Civil War happened between 1980 and 1992. Uh, those were the official dates. Now, when I've talked to my mom about it in the past. Um, She's been like, yeah, like, it was before that, you know, and I never really knew what she meant by that. All I heard was just like, yeah, like, you could say those years, but, like, we've been living through a war for way before that, right? Um, so I never knew, quite knew what that meant, and I quickly started noticing once I started writing a thesis is that what I, what I quickly noticed was that Salvadorans don't really talk about past trauma, um, especially national trauma, like things that are embedded into our history. So, of course, El Salvador was a uh, w- was colonized by the Spaniards, right? Uh, by Spain, and after that, it became an independent country. And it was that time period that I kind of started looking at, right? And so, I basically wrote my thesis jumping around dates, like not quite linear, but just jumping around dates between uh, uh, the independence of El Salvador, which I believe was eighteen twenty five. Um, to the current moment with the American caravans. It's a, it was a lot to cover, and that's why the, the thesis is so long. Um, but essentially, like, there were a few major key things that I gathered, uh, which is, one, again, like, there are so many silences surrounding Salvadoran history, and, like, let alone the United States. Like, it's already bad in El Salvador. Like, they're not going to know shit about us in the United States, right? And so... I'm calling my mom this one time. I'm like, mom, can you talk to me about the Civil War? Like, what you know? You know, I was just, I was just expect, expecting her to be like, oh, yeah, like, I was, like, 16 years old during the war. And um, 
uh, uh, she was a little older, but yeah. <laughs> um, uh, she was like, I was this young and, um, uh, 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 I like heard about so-and-so like getting shot. I thought that's what it, what it was going to be. Right. And so I'm calling my mom and suddenly out of nowhere, she's just like, oh yeah, like I was a bystander and this massacre. And I was just like, hold up, hold up, hold up. What? Mom, you what? Right. Um, cause you, you've seen her. She is the sweetest thing in the world. You would never be like, oh, she lived through some shit. Uh, but she did. Um, she told me about, um, the, sh- the shooting itself. It was in, um, 1963. I want to say, I don't want to give a wrong date, but that's what I'm 75. No, 1975. Um, so this was, um, basically, Okay, let me backtrack a little bit, just a little bit, so we get there. Basically, uh, from the time that El Salvador became an independent country until, like, the 1930s, um, it was still um, kind of culturally Spanish, if you will, like, in the way that that Lance worked. Um, So there were a lot of ejidos, which actually were communally owned by indigenous people, but the the produce of their their labor uh, was not met in the same amount of coin, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Um, so for a while, like there were reports of uh, basically like um, there's this popular tale in El Salvador that 14 families own all the wealth in, in El Salvador. Mm. Um, in reality, it's it's like more like 40 or more than more than 40 families, but still, you know, like <laughs> uh, those families are very much interconnected still. Um, and it's true that the majority of the wealth in the United States at the time was uh, owned by a small handful of people, like way more drastic than we know in the, in, in the United States, I'm sorry. Um, like I'm talking about people living on cents a day, right? Um, a week even. Um, and so in 1932, there's a peasant revolt. Um, mm. And this is like the big one, like the first one that happens and one of the most well-known ones because it ended up and in the event that we call La Matanza, and I say we call like very liberally because no one really talks about it. This is something that like I learned in depth about once I started doing my research because I did not learn this in school, not a touch, not not a single mention of it in school. The most I heard I heard about it was like from my mom talking about it in passing and like past, uh, in past conversations. But um, basically, what happened was that there was this group of farmers in the eastern side of the country. They basically said we had enough, you know, and they um, joined forces with the Communist Party of El Salvador at the time, El Salvador at the time, and um, they staged a revolt. They, for three days, I believe, went from city to city, town to town, like in the eastern side of the country, took uh, rich people, like landowners, either hostage or killed them. Um, and it took the it took the the National Guard by surprise. The National Guard being like the main uh, policing body at the time, and the National Guard was actually formed by the elite coffee planting families uh, at the time. I believe it was formed in 1917, some, something like that. And the purpose was to for them to enforce land laws. So it was specifically to protect the elite class, the bourgeoisie, if you will, the land owning class, uh, the people who own the means of production, and. It took them three days to respond, and respond they did. They uh, massacred uh, something like, I think the estimates are between 10,000 and 40,000 people um, in that side of the country. And it was a lot more systematic than just killing whomever. Like, there are, uh, there, 
there are theories that the National Guard actually targeted indigenous people because those were the people who were usually working the lands, right? Uh, so they were just kind of like kill anybody who looks brown indiscriminately, right? Um, but also, um, uh, um, they there were some towns in which supposedly what happened was that they started to kill kids who were like like men who were older than like 13 or something like that, um, just trying to like prevent something like that from happening again. So if, if right off the bat, we see like El Salvador being a really fascist state in a lot of in a lot of how it de- deals with dissent, and you don't hear about another revolts to that level again until the civil war um and so in the 60s and 70s which is when my my mom experienced all of this right uh the so the the beginnings of the civil war and that's what she meant by like it's a lot longer than that Mm -hmm. right like you got to understand that these things don't just happen out Mm -hmm, of the blue mm -hmm. you lead up to them and so um during the 60s and 70s there's a lot of growing um activism in labor unions which is why I'm such a big fan of labor unions too. Because uh, you days. know that. Because I know that um, they were uh, basically responsible in the major part um, in gathering workers and saying, like, you deserve better than this. Um, your labor is worth a lot more than just cents a day. Like, you need to be able to have a house, education, provide for your family, right? So unions were fighting for the rights of workers um, as best they could because mm-hmm. they weren't very big at the time. Um, but there were many. There were uh, many that were specific to farm workers um, and many that were um, actually a lot of some unions that I, that I have written down uh, for us to talk about and real quick are like the Federación Cristiana uh, de Campesinos, which is the Christian Farm Worker Federation. Um, there was the Movimiento de Estudiantes Revolucionarios de Secundaria, which is the revolutionary movement of high school students. Um, yeah, and there's also the um, Unión de Trabajadores del Campo, which is just the Farm Workers Union, um, and Unión de Pueblos de Tugurios, which is like Shantytown Dwellers Union. Um, so these were all people who, that were from... Um, uh, you know, disenfranchised populations, right? They were farmers. All they did was farm, and they didn't really have a livelihood other than that. They barely made a livelihood, like a, a life out of that. Um, there are people who were just high school students, right? And they saw the state that their country was in, and they wanted to fix it for their future future generations. And there's people who just like didn't even have housing, right? Like they were just kind of um, like setting their 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 shit down on some open land and hope that the police doesn't come, right? And and tear it down for them. Um, and so. Um, all these people are coming together and they're basically in talks about like what can we demand from the government and uh, how can we defend ourselves from the National Guard and from the Salvadoran Army, which at the time, the, the, the time uh, at this time the army had formed already. And so um, on top of that, there's also radicalization from the Catholic Church, which is really weird. And that's how people like my mom started getting the message, right? Because my my my, my uh, mom's side of the family, well, really all my family is really Catholic. El Salvador is a very Catholic country, um, and so yeah, weirdly enough, like there was Padre Rutilio Grande who was assassinated, I believe, in uh, March 12, and Rutilio Grande was like a, a priest. He was just kind of like the one of the very first people to go to church. To church, he got transferred to church uh, through churches a lot, and basically tell them like. Um, the Bible actually tells you that your labor is worth more, right? Like you saying the this text that is generally oppressive, right? That we see as oppressive to usually to basically say like God wants you to earn more money, God wants you to have like a uh, normal life where you're able to provide for your kids and not worry about everything else, right? Um, 
And so the Catholic Church actually started being labeled as secret communists at the, around this time. Yeah, but and that's like a tactic that they got from the United States, of course. Uh, this was like after well into into a, a Cold War era, right? Uh, like well, well into it. And so a lot of the, but because like the the Salvadoran state was so afraid of like repeating something like they did in 1932 when they saw the first communist slash like farm worker led revolt, um, they were trying to like keep this like as low key as possible basically basically try to like uh turn out the flame before the flame even lit right and so my mom um the, the story that i was trying to tell earlier was that she was going to a doctor's appointment with my granddad who was alive at the time rest in peace my dude mm-hmm. um but they were going to a doctor's appointment and the uh, social security like hospital and so I you kind of you kind of have to be Salvadoran and know your way around San Salvador to know where I'm talking about but essentially so imagine that there is a intersection right a major intersection so there were students from the National University of El Salvador Universidad uh, Nacional um, they were marching from their university and basically just parading around town to um it was it was a, a protest that i believe it, it was kind of like almost a um it was almost a, a tradition for them but it was always about political dissent like they always made the theme something against to criticize the government and the government at the time that they didn't fuck with that um they wanted to have this big uh, image that El Salvador was a land of smiles, right? Like, everything was fine, especially because El Salvador was in talks of hosting this universe that that year. Um, and so they had put a million dollars into that project, right? So they didn't want any anybody to be protesting during this time. And my mom is just there chilling at the hospital when she suddenly starts hearing shots, gunshots. And she looks out the window, and she just sees students, like, running frantically, um, not knowing where to go. And she did not know what was going on. This was not planned, you know? And so my grandfather was immediately like, we need to get out. We need to get out of here. And so um, they got out before they blockaded the hospital. And while they were walking down the hospital, like my grandfather, my mom recalls that my grandfather was constantly being like, you can't run because if you run, they'll shoot you. You think that you're doing something wrong. And she told me that when, as soon as she like stopped like thinking about running, she just like stopped to look around. And sure enough, like my grandfather was right. Anybody who was running, like they shot indiscriminately. Like it doesn't matter what you were there doing in that protest. Um, and this protest was peaceful. The the National Guard and the army later tried to claim that like they were attacked first, but come on, like it was a huge demonstration. And if like maybe three people had a gun in there, which I really doubt, if anything, it was probably rocks. And even then, I seriously doubt that. Like these are students. Um, uh, 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 um, whatever weapons they might have is not the same as a whole ass militarized force, right? And so my mom witnessed all of this. She saw people, like, you know, getting killed in the middle of the street. She told me that. So, and I and I corroborated this with actual like newspaper clippings from that year, from that date, and like everything that she said, like checked out. I was like, damn, mom, you got good ass memory because I would not remember any of this. But um, it all checked out, like exactly how she described it. Basically, like the National Guard and the Army teamed up to blockade the intersection, mm-hmm. so they didn't have anywhere to go. They were circled in. They like it seems to me that the plan the entire time was to just kill them, 
right? Like, no questions asked. And sure enough, like, uh, it was reported that, that hours later, like, there were big-ass hoses, like, uh, spraying down the sidewalk so you never saw the blood, you know, and, and they started moving bodies, right? And so if you hadn't been there earlier that day, you wouldn't have noticed that anything had happened, that something was amiss. And so, like, that's what she grew up with, right? And so what's really baffling is when Americans, like, have questions about why are people trying to get out, right? Because, and when, whenever I try to have conversations like this, I'm like, well, this is why my mom lived, right? She told me not just this, but also, like, she saw her, her like, um, high school teacher's, like, son get pulled out of a, pulled out of a, um, a bus by the National Guard and then forced, like, to be recruited or else, right and like thankfully she got to see that son again at the end of the war but like that wasn't the case for other people i have an uncle actually who was picked up by uh the government and we never heard of him ever again right he was forced to serve we don't know so what we do know is that someone basically gave a tip that my uncle was involved and they left insurgency Mm. we don't know if that was we don't know if that was correct or not we genuinely don't know um you know um we, we, we actually don't know like whether he was involved or not, but um, that was that was the tip. And so Avan showed up one day looking for uh, for him and he wasn't home. So they grabbed his little brother um, and like basically like while pointing a gun to his little brother's head, basically told him to walking down the street calling for his brother's name so he would come out. Um, and he did and, you know he was concerned for his little brother and uh, he like someone put a sack on top of his head and threw him in a van. And we never heard about him ever again. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of trauma to be talked about that we're not talking about um, in Salvadorian history. And this is like just, you know, the, the, the snippets that I can give you. These are the, the, um, uh, the frames that, that I can provide to you. Like God knows all the other stories about disappeared people because desaparecido is a term that we have in El Salvador and Latin America really to refer to some to to, to the um, the war act of taking prisoners and like either killing them and not disclosing their their positions uh, their 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 body like their location over their bodies or forcing them to join the military and once the conflict is over to exile them right. Um, so there's a whole category of people who we don't know if they actually died in civil wars or in any wars really. They just disappeared. Um, and so we don't count like those bodies in the amount of, and when we talk, whenever we talk about like the death toll in um, the Salvadoran Civil War, which it's about like seventy five thousand people, uh, half of a million to a million displaced, uh, immediately after the conclusion of, of uh, the Civil War. And about at least half of that number immigrated to the United States. So before um, before uh, 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 the Civil War broke out, like I believe in the 60s, there were only a couple of thousand Salvadorans in the United States. Now there's a little bit over a million. It's, I think it's like 1.3 million. Um, so how do we get there, right? Like people just don't immigrate in a large-ass number for no reason. And the reason is that like the, a Civil War like this, which the United States... Um, I believe it's, they were donating money something at a rate of a dollar a million dollars a day. Um, so over time, I believe it accumulated to about three billion dollars from the Reagan Carter administrations. Um, 
And you can only imagine, right, like what kind of damage that amount of money into a civil war can do because they were supporting the fascist government, the government that uh, mandated that these students be killed, you know, because they were like, the government is censoring us. And that was the whole protest, actually, was that they um, they were protesting the censoring of university students, um, which is why they also ended up, you know, building these unions as well, like the, the high school students union and there was other uh, college student unions as well. Um, you know... So to me, like the Salvadoran Civil War was really a movement by the people, and it was addressing a lot of the social inequalities that we have been living with since colonization and well and well after that. Right? Uh, we're talking about a country that for a while had more than fifty percent of its population like not being able to read or write. We're talking about a population which, like in nineteen uh, by nine, by the nineteen sixties, like uh, still had about seventy percent of its population of the kids in its population malnourished. Right we couldn't provide for our people. And these were the type of things that we were trying to get the government to address. Mm. Come in the United States, you know, being like, nah, fuck those commies. Um, and just kind of thwart all of that movement for us, right? There was no social prog- progression that happened after the Civil War. Civil Wars don't just, you know, end and all the infrastructure that was destroyed, like, comes back to, like, the pristine condition, right. right? That doesn't happen. Even with donations, that doesn't happen. Um so again, like it was baffling for me to. It's always baffling for me to like try to debate uh, people on the right about this because it's, like, it's just kind of like, what do you mean? There's no concern now, um, and so sorry that this is taking so long. No. But um, a lot of the parallels that I saw in the aftermath of the um, of the Civil War in El Salvador to like where we are now with the caravans is that for one, um, this. Um, kind of talk about contagion of like disease or invasion that we are hearing now right we have people like Tommy Lauren basically saying like oh we shouldn't let people at the border cross because we like heard of like two cases of uh, AIDS like you know from immigrants and it's kind of like well baby we have a whole ass epidemic still in the United States like what are you talking about like two people is what it's going to do for you like go to the south please and talk to brown and black men in the south right and tell them what you think because um, they have fucking real shit that they still have to live with now because our, our government, I mean, we, we now like are cutting uh, research funds, right, mm-hmm. uh, for the same issue. Um, so it's it's really just, a, like, it, it's a non-existent argument again. Like, they know how ridiculous they sound. Um, these arguments can be really easily pull up, pulled apart, but they stick, right? Um, they, they justify the nativist uh, tendencies that certain people have. And... Um, so there's that, and also, like, uh, she, she also, uh, I think, um, referenced, like, the flu. And it's like, yeah, it says everybody got the flu. Like, hello, like, you're not scaring me, but that's just me, right? Because I know what's going on. Like, we're talking mm-hmm. about, um, we're talking about people as if they're vectors for pathogens, uh, which is really weird from me, from and also interesting from a theoretical perspective, right? A lot of my thesis had to do with a lot of theory. You already know that my drag name is Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, Michel Foucault was very present in this mm-hmm. thesis. Um, for the same reasons that I mentioned discourse, like way earlier, meaning like discourse, not just like what you say about me and what I say about you, but like everything that governs the legibility of my body in your view and vice versa, right? So something as like thinking that Latin American people are more prone to disease for some, you know, as if that's like a biological truth when really it's more of a social one and it's really more of like 
a racist one. <laughs> you know, like we don't get the the medical attention that we that we de- that we need. We don't get the, tax, the the same amount of resources medically. Um, and you know, there's also things such as environmental racism, you know, which affects your health outcomes. Um, so there's just, and I mean, this is I, this is actually perfect because one of this is one of the reasons why people are immigrating right now is because of environmental catastrophes and, and, and environmental uh, incidents, if you will, that have occurred in our in our uh, lands. So right now, like a lot of drinking water is what used to be drinking water in El Salvador is no longer drinkable because of the mining industry, uh, which doesn't have a lot to do with the United States, but it does have a lot to do with European nations. Um, so there's there's people like quite literally like. Um, extracting um uh, uh capital from our from our land right and at the same time poisoning it um so a lot of people who used to rely on these uh, freshwater sources can't anymore um there's also like of course all the earthquakes that we have been experiencing with more frequency now which have let people a lot of people homeless um yeah there's just like a lot of things that we need to deal with and there's the whole question of ms-13 which i as i mentioned earlier was exported from the united states they actually formed in the United States. They were Salvadoran, for sure. And they formed, uh, there's a lot of theories about this, but this is one of the, another one of the stereotypes that has been used against uh, migrant caravans is like, we don't know if there's MS-13 members in there, right? Uh, who knows those dangerous MS-13 members? Um, which, I mean, to be honest, it's kind of hard to miss. Um, there's a lot of like things that you have to do to be in the gang, and they're very visible, such as like um, tattooing yourself like with a, like with an MS13 brand, right? Um, and um, uh, uh, um, so what ends up what ends up happening in the '90s is that there is a lot of uh, immigration crackdowns, right? There's a lot of uh, 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 deporting of undocumented immigrants, which is what the response that we're seeing now, right? When with the rise in the family. Uh, and family uh, uh, arrivals at the border. And uh, so I think out of the people, out of all the people that applied for asylum uh, during the Civil War to the United States from El Salvador, um, only about 2% of them were accepted. Um, which, like, how can you deny that there was a crisis in El Salvador, right? The, the United States was involved in it. <laughs> but they still denied it, right? And they did not allow the majority of these people, literally only 2% of these people were allowed to uh, live as asylum seekers in the United States. Um, and on top of that, like those people who were able to make it across undocumented, they found a lot of um, animosity from like existing communities in California, whether those were white, um, other Latinos, you know, um, other gangs that already existed in the area. So that's kind of like the, where the general theory as to how MS-13 came to be comes from is that people, Salvadoran people wanted to stick together because they knew that those were the people that were going to be watching out for each other and protecting, um, which is like, it, it, you know, when we're, whenever we talk about gangs, it's, it's very complicated. It's not just kind of like a thing of like, they're, they're fucked up people. Like there's social, a lot of social cues that go into and a lot of social uh, uh, um, choices and, uh, and um, uh, life chances, if you will, that lead to people joining gangs. A gang is sort of an answer to a lack of social structure. Yes, exactly. Um, and so, right, so that's where MS-13 comes out of. And one's a lot In of the people, States. In the States. and um, They are Salvador, Salvadorian... Descent, yes. Uh, would you say 
asylum seekers. They started off as they were from the Civil War. You could they see, were, yeah, they I were mean, that displaced them. Mm-hmm. They came mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. like many folks did. Yes, but some chose to click up. Yes, and they formed gangs. Yes, probably to protect themselves in the neighborhoods that they were in. Yep. And so, mm-hmm. among it, a lot of things, like I, there's a lot of literature out, out there about this actually, about MS13 in itself. You want to plug a book? Uh, let me think of one on top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. but the the long story short is yeah. that MS13 is a United States invention. Essentially, yeah, it, it's it's an invention out of the social, you, you know, um, the the the, the uh, social conditions that were afforded to. Salvadoran immigrants, like you said, it was or lack thereof, as you said, um, and so um, when they get to the to El Salvador, right? What do they find? They find a country that's ripe for a lot of the activities that they want to get up to. Unemployment is at an all time high. You know, more than half the country is no longer working. A lot of every, a lot of everything, the social safety nets are not there anymore. This is right? after MS thirteen members in the states were deported. Yes, back so back to El Salvador. Mm. Um, there was no like, um, there was no uh, really real planning that went into this. If I'm being honest, like even like the, the El Salvador was never like, oh yeah, this person has like a record. Like let's rehabilitate them. You know, let let's give them the the the, the, the resources that they need to get back into society. You know, and do 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 stuff. I also <laughs> well, I also heard yeah. that a lot of folks had military training. Yes. Uh, well, mm, yes, mm, maybe, kind of, so, perhaps, yes, but also not as many as people make it out to be. But yes, definitely, both from the um, FMLN with the, the left wing guerrilla um, side of it, but also from the right wing government. There were definitely a lot of people who had military background and a lot of what they knew was you know how to fuck up a person and i think that i didn't mention was that on top of um uh sending like these billions of dollars in aid to el salvador the united states actually personally trained uh, a lot of the right-wing forces um so the, the majority of them the majority that went into battle and committed a lot of atrocities where um where uh, of um uh were graduated from american academies and so yeah, like, like again, like it, there's the, the answer to me is so clear because I know the history, um, but I understand how it's like not as evident to some of the white people in this country um, when it comes to like why are we immigrating? Well, um, we don't have the a stable economy anymore. Like yes, that makes us economic economic migrants, but the economic part of it is still social because we got here um, through all the civil war. Uh, that we had to deal with, uh, a lot of it exacerbated by the United States, right? Um, and there was no reconstruction. And there was no real reconstruction. I mean, yes, it did happen, but at the end of it all, like I, there was one study, and I'm blanking exactly on what, on what it was exactly about, but the gist of it was that um, even after we account for the reparations that happened after the Civil War with donations from different countries, um, the wealth disparity stayed just about the same. Um, it improved like ever so slightly, but the wealth disparity is still there, right? So a lot of people are still poor. Um, a lot of a lot of people still live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and I mean, to be quite honest, like in my life in El Salvador, like until I moved to the United States, the United States was always painted as like the land of opportunity, right? Like this American dream that they always sell to you, and you get here and it's a whole different reality. Um, 
and there's no one to prepare you for that you know you could say that to someone uh, 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 like you could you could be a relative to someone who wants to move to the United States and you could be like yo chill like it's not as good as you think it is and they won't know what that means until they get here right um, so we can talk about that actually too <laughs> but yeah I guess to get back to my thesis real quick um, a lot of like what I wanted to end up at was that uh, again like all the things all the other things that lead to the social conditions that Salvadorans live in now um, and like why they're trying to leave the country it's for the environmental factors it's for the economic factors it's for the social factors with the growth of MS-13 as I mentioned like when they came uh, basically like gang activity was kind of the thing that you could really turn to uh, to make a living at the time because the, there was no family to go back to, you know, if you hadn't been there for a long time and you didn't even know where your family went after the war. Um, there was no job to go back to if you didn't have, you know, a job that would take you back. Um, so, yeah, like now MS-13 is a huge problem in El Salvador, but uh, it's kind of being painted as an American pro- a problem, right? Like in the way, that, rather, it's, pa- it's being painted as a, as if Americans are the biggest victims here. So a lot of what Trump used was that, like, they kill, uh, MS-13, like, they're animals because of the way that they kill. They kill with the intent to, uh, to, to, to uh, inflict a lot of pain is basically his argument. Um, and, his, and his evidence for that being that they, like, use machetes and whatnot, but, like, maybe take into consideration, I mean, those are just kind of, like, culturally <laughs> relevant uh, 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 instruments, weapons that we have. Like, it's really not much different than a fucking knife fight, uh, if you will. Like, not to excuse, like, the brutality and the, and the murder, of course, but, like, I think that it's very opportunistic to basically say, like, these people are savages because they're using these, like, old-school uh, 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 weapons, right? Just really opportunistic. Um, and to basically claim that there is no humanity behind them, because even if, like, if you read more about MS-13 and, like, the kind of people that are in these gangs, there's a, quite a sizable amount that don't want to be in MS-13 in the first place. Uh, it's just kind of, like, what they had available, again, to survive, to know that someone had their back. A lot of people basically say that um, they joined without really thinking about it. Like, they were offered the opportunity, and they were like, yeah, like, I guess I'll do it, right? And they do the the 13-minute, the uh, like, beaten that they get um and there's also like uh people who were in it and now are trying to get out and then shove to the border as asylum seekers right and it's not because they're trying to infiltrate the united states but because there's literally no way for them to leave the gang without getting killed so their first response is to go come here there's a few cases actually where um where uh like legal cases in uh in in, in courts here in the united states where Asylum seekers have basically said, yes, I'm part of MS-13, but I don't want to be anymore. And I'm seeking asylum because uh, under this uh, under this uh, clause that says that uh, I can't be deported if there's uh, suspicion enough that I, I will be targeted because of my identity, uh, the place that I'm being deported to, um, that would be illegal. And so there is a clause that says this, essentially. But there's also conditions to this clause. And it's it's really arbitrary, really, the way that this works. Basically, a lot of these people get denied under the pretense that um, a form, being a former MS-13 member is not a social category, um, that social categories are things such as like race, religion, you know, gender, sex, whatever, whatever, what have you. That's on that's uh, that's in our law books. But um, MS-13 uh, membership is not uh, by their definitions. I'm, I I do forget the specifics of it. There's like two 
there's two different criteria that it fails to meet according to them. I'm blanking on what those are right now, but mm. essentially what it means is that um, those people could never claim that they um, are a victim in the situation, mm. right? That just because they're going to get killed by the police when they get back to El Salvador or just because they're going to get killed by MS-13 when they go back to El Salvador, we can't keep them. Like, there's no chance for redemption or for ever changing you know like you are forever marked a savage uh a brown savage at that right um i think that the way that we treat immigrants quite literally as animals i mean that's why i picked this as the title of my thesis like these are not people these are animals is because when i hear lines like that i don't hear them about ms-13 exclusively i don't hear them as that i think the discourse is very much that like yes it's about ms-13 on the surface but all of that meaning is being ascribed onto our brown skin, right? It's quite literally being grafted onto it. Um, I mean, if you read a lot of Frantz Fanon, that's probably that's that was a huge also uh, part of this project. Um, more not 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 quite so in the writing, but definitely in my thought process. A lot of my th- thought process was kind of like his theory of how um, racism is historicized. Like it's not ju- it's not just quite it's definitely not biological and it's not quite just social. It definitely has. Uh, a, a history to it, something that you can pinpoint in the past that says, well, I am seen as this, my, my skin is red as this because of this other thing that happened, right? Um, so for him, um, being like a black man in a colonized uh, 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 land, right, uh, that meant kind of like all the, all the other stereotypes that he knew about black people, right? All of that he had to endure. Um, and that was kind of his take. For me, it was uh, it was more of like, well, there's already the his, this history of where we are past, where we come and, quote, invade the country when really we were fleeing humanitarian crises, like, for God's sake. Um, right? But, like, these, there's these other nativist perceptions that have already been ascribed unto us. So it's so easy once, like, history repeats itself, if you will. Or rather, it's not repeating itself. History is still progressing as is. You know, it has never changed. Just because something ceases to be talked about doesn't mean, again, that it's magically fixed. Um, so no, like, yes, I, I, we've always been pests in the United States eyes, you know, whether we're documented or not. Um, and yeah, so that's, I guess, I, I, I guess that's what I can say about my thesis. Oh, senior essay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what does black and brown queer culture in Vermont look like to you? Culture? <laughs> Um, good question. Uh, in Beyonce's words, uh, I, I never thought about that question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is okay. I'll put it this way can I give you like a lot more context than what you asked me for? Okay, it's complicated for me. Because I don't think that I've ever truly, really had a chance at a brown, black, queer culture ever where I've been. Um, I was kind of alluding to this earlier, like an early conversation that we had about like kind of the differences about growing up brown and queer in El Salvador versus growing up brown and queer in in Vermont. and I mean, even in El Salvador, like a queer, <laughs> no honey, <laughs> she wasn't coming out. Not for another uh, ten years. No, nah, no, nah, not like that. I mean, I was, I was never in a closet. Let's be honest. But I mean, I wasn't telling people down the street, you know, like I like, 
I didn't see you. Yo, dude. <laughs> oh, that's your man. <laughs> uh, you know, that wasn't me. Uh, I was also a child. But <laughs> valid, right? Valid. Um, but yeah, like I definitely like had a perception of how queer people were treated in El Salvador. I, I remember very well whether like it, I, I knew at least one, one, one gay dude in the whole city that I lived in. It was a big ass city. Um, the only one who I knew that was out, right? And I lived for him. I, like, had no prejudice when I was that little. But I could tell that other people didn't, like, you know, quite fuck with that. And, like, that molded a lot of my experience with my own queerness. I, I you know, I joke, I'm like, I'm homophobic, you know? <laughs> like, I, I joke this a lot, but that was me for a minute. That was very much me. A lot of internalized shit. Um, where, like, I go to church, and I was always being told, like, oh, you're going to marry a nice woman, you know, have all these, like, eight kids. Uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, in, I'm into that, I guess. Um, and, or, like, my mom just, like, <laughs> bless her, I love her. But, like, I mean, any family member being like, oh, you're into that girl, you know, like, kind of, like, always being pushed, uh, like, this uh, compulsory heterosexuality, right? Um, and that was really repressive and, like, weird to grow up around. Um, but also, like, my brownness in El Salvador, like, we were talking about colorism earlier and how, like, um, racism is not quite the same in El Salvador and Latin America as it is in the United States. And, like, we really, really more work on colorism, which, of course, like, brown and black communities still deal with here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I, um, yeah, like, I feel a lot of, like, very different treatment from, like, the kids in my school who were, like, who were very white uh, versus, like, me and kids who were darker than me. I definitely, like, growing up, like, all all media that I saw was, like, white people, right? Like, really light-skinned Latinos. Like, if you wanted to be on TV, you had to be light-skinned. There's no other way. Unless you wanted to play a stereotype, right? Um, but, like, and so I didn't really have a culture there to, you know, to, to grasp onto when I was little, uh, which was, was unfortunate. And then when I moved to Vermont, you know, It was crazy because, well, I think the first thing that I noticed, like, right off the bat was the racism. Like, damn, um, these kids don't joke around. Like, kids are, kids are, uh, okay, I got called a spick a lot by friends in in middle school. Uh, Like, I'd be like, yeah, like, you're this, like, my good friend. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, you fucking spick. And I'd be like, yo, you what? Uh, And they'd be like, ha, 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 like, it's just a joke, right? And I just was supposed to play along with it. And my ass did. I was a dumb, 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 dumb hoe. Um, <laughs> I was a ho- <laughs> um, I was so dumb, you know, like I, I entertained it for a minute and I remember like this one particular time in high school, this white kid who was like, I guess in the culture, I don't know. He was, we had, I don't know. He was friends with a lot of brown people and, um, he was the N word ones like in lunch and I was just kind of like, yo, 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 um, let's call him, let's call him Bryce. Um, yo, Bryce, chill the fuck out, man. Like, you can't be saying that, right? And um, he's like, what do you mean? Like, my black friend over here is totally chill with it, right? And, like, he's just, like, waiting for this kid to, like, answer, right? And I'm just there, like, okay, you're fucked up for doing that, too. <laughs> you know, like, you're not, you're not slithering your way out of this one. And, like, it was basically flipped on me being, like, too much, you know? Like, I was overreacting. I was like, no, man, like, you're not gonna ask a fucking, per- like, person of color to answer to your racism and allow it. Uh-uh, no, ma'am. Um, so, yeah, let's like, just say I had a lot of enemies in high school. <laughs> but, um, 
even then queer culture, like I was the only on about queer kid in, the, in my high school. Um, the one queer experience that I had was in secret. <laughs> it was in secret, and we never spoke about it. Shh. Except then he's. Then I kind of did. <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of are uh, now, too, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you don't know him. <laughs> you don't know that I don't. Oh, no, 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 you definitely don't. Trust me. I'm not going to tell you why I know that. But. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. Yes. <laughs> High but, um, school. But, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, that was that was it. That was it. I didn't. I was I didn't have a pop in like that in high school, so you better know that when I went to college, I was crazy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, so not a lot to work with, I gotta say. And here in, in Montpelier, I didn't have many queer friends. Uh, didn't know anybody that was my age that was queer. Um, I did. I did have one older queer mentor. His name was. I'm not. I can't say his name. His name was a cool dude, <laughs> um, and he was dope. He played. He was my tennis coach, and like I didn't know that he was gay, but like I knew. You know what I mean? And eventually, he let it slip, and I was like, "Oh, okay. Like I see you. Real recognizes real." Um, <laughs> and like you know, that was about it, though. Like I was. He was the only figure that I had. Um, so not a lot of culture, and so I haven't been in vermont for like almost four years two years straight because i stayed in connecticut while i was doing what i was at school for two summers mm-hmm. um so i wasn't up here a lot and mm-hmm. like the two years before that i was just here for breaks right um and uh, uh um so i i still like now that like i'm a, an adult if you will <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'm a child i'm 12 remember <laughs> um now that i'm grown not really now that i'm older there we go um Still, I think, like, I'm just barely trying to get a little taste, you know, of, like, some kind of queer community. And it's not even mine. Like, I've been coming up to Burlington (laughs) and hanging out with you and your friends and be like, yeah, I'm in it now. Um, You know? Um, So, still, like, very lacking for me. I don't know if that's the case for everybody. I'm sure that there's a vibrant, you know, brown queer community out there. It's just definitely not a Montpelier. Like, definitely not. No. Nah. (laughs) <laughs> when do you feel most brown and out when do i feel most brown and out when i'm in my car and i'd be bopping those 90s and 80s hits and i'd be like wow like built in the crap out of it and i'm alone in my car just driving you got to hear it earlier <laughs> yeah that's, want, that's probably it you want to sing a little something for us um, yeah. I was the I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, Reggie, this is not that show. No. Imagine I just come in with like the big ass, like biggest runs of your life and like just Mariah Carey whistle tone. That'd be crazy. Like I, oh, I, I hadn't prepared anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, me? Whoa. <laughs> what are what are you talking about? <laughs> Like yourself. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, yeah. Tomas, for speaking with us today. Mm-hmm. I I think you're wonderful. I think you're wonderful. Thank you. I think that Cashville doesn't know what it has coming its way. Yeah. 
it's going to be you and Young Buck <laughs> ru- running that city. Yeah, me and my, my little booties. Uh, they don't know about this, what's coming to them because I'm trying to do my drag debut debut oh, up in Nashville now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they truly don't know. Chakra Khan. <laughs> no, Foucault. Chakra Khan will never happen. Don't, oh. do, don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> a delight, truly. A yeah. pleasure mm-hmm. and a delight. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on Brown and Out. Thank you for having me. 